Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really helps us and we really appreciate it. If you'd like to listen back to any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. This week, we're very pleased to be joined by Mike Shinoy to discuss his new book, Are You With Me? Kevin Boyle and the Rise of the Human Rights Movement, which is published by Lilliput Press. Mike Shinoy is a former foreign correspondent for CNN and is an MEP body and DuPont award-winning journalist. He is currently a non-residential senior fellow at the University of Southern California's US-China Institute. Mike, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Now, you're no stranger to Ireland, Mike. So could you tell us about your connection to Ireland and how far back it goes, and also your connection to Kevin Boyle? Well, I've been primarily in my journalistic and academic career, a sort of China and Asia person, but I actually visited Ireland before I ever came to the Far East. I got interested in the the situation in Northern Ireland in the very early 1970s. I was a university student and had been active in the anti-Vietnam War movement and supported the civil rights movement. And so I was curious about the political struggle that was unfolding in the North. And while I was still at university, My parents were college professors and they were doing a sabbatical year in London, the 71-72 academic year. So I went to visit them at Christmas and I was in the process of writing a paper uh, about the emerging troubles in the North. And I decided to go to Dublin and see what I could learn. So I flew to Dublin and I knocked on the door of the offices of Provisional Sinn Féin. Uh, Here I was, 19-year-old college student. And uh, I just, I said, I'm here to learn about what's going on. And this very friendly guy pointed me, he said, go in the back room. He said, have a wee word with Joe. And so I go in the back room and Joe is Joe Cahill, who was then the chief of staff of the provisional IRA uh, on the run from the North, most, one of the most wanted men in Northern Ireland, who apparently had nothing better to do with his time than to spend almost an entire afternoon telling uh, this American college kid his version of why Northern Ireland was in the state it was in. So that was my sort of introduction. And then about six months later, my sociologist father was invited to give a lecture at Queen's University in Belfast. And I was back visiting my folks and I went along with him and we arrived in Belfast the weekend that the Ulster Defense Association was setting up no-go areas and the main loyalist areas of Belfast because uh, they'd already been established in the nationalist areas. So Belfast was in utter chaos, pandemonium, barricades, uh, burning cars, shootings. In any event, my father gave his lecture at Queens and there was a reception afterwards. And Kevin Boyle, who was very interested in the sociology of law had come to the lecture. And it turned out that he was about to go spend a year at Yale University in the States, which is where I was studying. And I was going into my final year. And so I convinced him to supervise me during that academic year in an independent reading course on sort of topics and themes in Irish history. And we would meet once a week and uh, we became friends. And he also became and remained something of a kind of intellectual mentor in, in helping shape my understanding of the situation in Ireland. And then after I finished Yale and, and began to try to embark on a career as a foreign correspondent, I spent quite a lot of time in the North in 73, 74, 75, and even later. And often I would stay at Boyle's 
uh, house in the spare bedroom of his house near the Queens campus. So uh, that's how I got to know him. And then we remained in touch through the rest of his life. Uh, and then after he died, uh, his wife told me about the archive of his papers, which she donated to NUI Galway. Uh, he'd spent about eight years teaching uh, at Galway uh, from the late 70s to the mid 80s. And when I took a look at this archive, the list of the documents that were in the archive was a PDF file that was 500 pages long. It turned out Boyle was one of these guys who never threw anything out. And as I scanned through the list, it became clear to me that as well as I thought I knew him, there were huge chunks of his life that he'd done remarkable things that I didn't know anything about. And I thought it would make a very interesting book project. My three previous books were all about Asia. So in 2016, I embarked on this project made about a dozen trips to Ireland, spent weeks and weeks and weeks camped out in the library, Galway going through this archive at the James Hardiman Library on the campus, uh, eventually conducted close to 150 interviews and put together this account of a, of a remarkable figure who played an important and not well appreciated role, both in the beginning of the troubles, its evolution and in the peace process, but also played a really important role on the international stage in forging the human rights movement that began to emerge in, in the 70s and 80s and up to the present day. Mike, it's anticipating our discussion a little bit, but I'm fascinated to, to hear that you met Joe Cahill. And I wonder if you could talk about the contrast between what Joe Cahill might have told you uh, for the proposed solutions to Northern Ireland's problems and what Kevin Boyle's version was. I, I should just say Kevin Boyle met Joe Cahill at one point too in, in the sort of early, early 70s. And one of the things that made him different from people like Joe Cahill and others, uh, more, more hardline people, was that Boyle was constantly sort of trying to find practical ways forward that would not involve using violence. And his uh, one attempt to encourage Joe Cahill in that direction didn't work. And, and he acknowledged as much. But Cahill gave me the standard provisional version of Irish history, the British imperialists who had conquered Ireland and who had to be thrown out by force. It was the only language that he said that the British would understand the, uh, the, the Protestant Unionist population in the North was just an afterthought. Boyle was never a, a, a nationalist, in, in, uh, a Republican or a nationalist. Uh, he grew up in Newry in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, which was a predominantly Catholic town, but, but because it was so overwhelmingly Catholic, it didn't have the kind of sharp tensions that you found in other places where, where the sectarian divide was, was more acute and, and, and the interface was more tense. So unlike some of the people that, that he worked with in, in the civil rights movement, for example, Michael Farrell, with whom he was very close uh, and worked very closely. But Farrell had a much sharper edge, but he came from Machrafelt near, near Derry, and which had a much harsher history of encounters with the authorities and the Protestants and Catholics. So Boyle didn't have that. And he was comfortable, I think, seeing himself as a part of Northern Ireland slash the UK and also the Irish Republic. And, and he certainly was adamantly against the use of, of violence uh, in any form. So that, I think, marked him out as different from the more hardline uh, people like Cahill. Well, Mike, one of the interesting things about the early civil rights movement is the concept of British rights for British citizens, that despite what some people in the loyalist community would have thought, that it was very reformist. It wasn't as radical and revolutionary and republican as some of its critics thought. I think that's right. One of the things that is interesting when you look back at what Boyle said and in putting together, and one of the problems in putting this book together was that Boyle died in 2010, so I couldn't talk to him. But there, there were a couple of very, very long interviews that he did, one with an American academic in the early 70s. It's 90 pages, the transcript. And another with a British academic, Simon Prince, for a book he wrote about the early days of the Troubles, to which he generously gave me the, the whole interview. And one of the things Boyle talks about was a kind of almost a naivete that by the late 60s, the IRA's border campaign that began in 56 was kind of ancient history. Partition was just there. The people who went to Queen's University, where there were quite a lot of Catholics, and Boyle was part of this generation of, 
of sort of aspiring, you know, to middle classness Catholics who who went to Queens. But the, the border wasn't the issue. The issue was that the unionist power structure in the North had institutionalized discrimination targeting the Catholic minority. And that was contrary to values that were or were supposed to be central to the British state. Uh, and there was a kind of naive lack of awareness of the depth of sectarian tensions. And, and, and Boyle himself talked about how they didn't really realize what uh, demons they were creating the circumstances to burst forth, because by asking for essentially reasonable non-revolutionary demands, which the unionist state proved itself incapable of granting, it exposed the inequities of the system and the unionist or loyalist, the Protestant population uh, and, and their political leaders were so threatened by this uh, that it triggered the unyielding response and the, the thuggish heavy-handed behavior of the security forces which in turn spurred the militancy of the movement and, and led to the emergence of the provisional IRA. But at the time, it was very much a reformist thing. And getting rid of the border wasn't the central issue. It was allowing people to have equal voting rights. It was ending discrimination in housing. It was ending the ban on, on politically symbolic gestures like flying an Irish flag and things like that, respecting the rights of people to, to say what they, they felt, which were essentially British values, is I think the way Boyle saw it at the time. And it was only when that was thwarted that the situation then spiraled out of control. Now, you mentioned people's democracy there, Mike, and you mentioned Michael Farrell, that group and, and Michael Farrell, but also Kevin Boyle, uh, I see from your work, were deeply involved in a march from Belfast to Derry, which some people talk about kicking off the troubles. Uh, can you talk about that and what happened there? The march, known as the Long March, it was a march from Belfast to Derry that began on January 1st, 1969, and it ended in violence, and it is widely seen as the sort of point when things began to spiral in a very dark direction. The march was proposed by Michael Farrell and more radical members of the people's democracy, initially Boyle and also Bernadette Devlin Makaliski, who uh, I discovered in the course of the research was extremely close to Boyle. At the beginning, anyway, they really saw eye to eye, and he was in many ways her political mentor when she emerged into prominence. Uh, but they were against holding this march. But when these more radical elements said they were going to go anyway, they thought, well, they want to split the movement, and it's making a valid point about injustice. And it was modeled on the Reverend Martin Luther King's famous march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965. Uh, which was one of the pivotal moments in the American civil rights movement because the, the, the battle for civil rights in the States was one of the things that inspired the early civil rights activists in Northern Ireland. And it turned out, I discovered in the course of my research, that Boyle and Michael Farrell during the course of this march were the main people who were negotiating with the police at each of the various fraught steps along the way. And I actually dug up memos that the police superintendent, who was sort of the main guy on, on the side of the police, wrote every day back to his bosses. I met with Farrell, I met with Boyle, and we got them to go this way or go that way and so on. And so this kind of fits the role that Boyle consistently played of, even in these fraud situations, trying to find practical way out. But then the march was ambushed at the Berntollet Bridge, about 10 miles uh, from Derry by uh, several hundred men, including people who were in the B specials. The police stood by and, and let these folks attack the students. Many of them were very badly beaten and injured. And then the march regrouped and went on into Derry and Farrell had been injured. And so Boyle became the de facto leader. And, and I discovered again in the research that it was Boyle who negotiated with the police the arrangements for the marchers to enter Derry so there wouldn't be a huge riot and Boyle then spoke at this big rally. But he was very disheartened by what happened. And he said later that it was only then that he realized, he began to realize the depths of the sectarian division. 
that like many of the, the younger students, and Boyle, Boyle was a professor, most of the other activists were students. So he was always seen in the people's democracy as kind of older, wiser, more mature person that people turn to for leadership. But he said, even he didn't really appreciate how deep the sectarian divisions were and how much the challenges posed by the, the civil rights movement were exacerbating them. Mike, like every single thing about the Northern Ireland Troubles, you know, there's various versions of what happened at Bruntullet and the early civil rights marches. But one version is that, and even Michael Farrell said this, is that the march was provocative in that it went through kind of predominantly Protestant areas of South Derry. Activists like Eamon McCann, who again was much more radical probably than Kevin Boyle, have said that the goal of the early radicals was to provoke the state into an overreaction. Uh, what would Kevin Boyle's opinion have, have been of that kind of approach? Uh, he was very uncomfortable with it. That's why uh, he, with the approach that uh, you, you, you needed to, uh, you wanted to provoke a confrontation. Uh, and that's why he was uncomfortable with the idea of holding the march to begin with. And he sort of reluctantly went along with it when it seemed like that's the direction the group was going and he didn't want to see a split in the group. But his efforts throughout that time, as I was able to document in Are You With Me, were focused on avoiding physical confrontation while making the political statement that we ought to be able to march. And, and I think uh, there was even an, an editorial in the Belfast Telegraph on the second or third day of the march before the Bertolt clash, talking about all the calls that had been made that, th that these marchers should not march for fear of provoking the other side and noting that would anybody be saying it if the roles were reversed and it was the Protestants marching. Nobody would be saying, oh, you can't march because you might provoke the other side. So it was part of this attempt to say, if you're gonna treat it, the communities have to be treated equally. But Boyle would have been very, very unhappy. Uh, and he was deeply unhappy with the violence. His idea was not to provoke a riot. His idea was to make a political statement, but not provoke a riot. And that, even though he was close personally with, with Farrell and McCann, and he sort of worked with them politically, he was different. And he, he wasn't a revolutionary. He didn't want a revolution. He wanted deep, thoroughgoing reforms, but he didn't want to bring the whole system crashing down. But one of the conclusions that some people began to reach after Bernd Hollett was, if even something on the face of it, straightforward as a group of a couple of hundred kids marching from Belfast to Derry was gonna trigger this hysterical and violent reaction from the unionist, loyalist, Protestant population, then that raises the question, can the system be reformed? And in that sense, making the argument that later people like Joe Cahill and others in the provisional IRA made, which is the system is beyond reform and there was nothing to do but destroy it. Well, Mike, after this, Kevin's connection with civil rights continued and he became part of the committee of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. And that brings us on to Bloody Sunday. What was Kevin's connection with Bloody Sunday? Kevin's connection with Bloody Sunday is an interesting one, and it was one which I was utterly unaware of. He never, ever spoke about it, to me anyway, and I don't think that too many other people. But at the end of 1971, in the wake of the Northern Ireland government and British government's decision to introduce internment without trial, which was targeted ostensibly at the IRA, essentially only nationalist, you know, activists, and sometimes innocent, many often innocent Catholics uh, were picked up. There was tremendous anger in, in the Catholic community. In, interestingly, it turns out that in the immediate aftermath of internment, there was a rent and rate strike that the people in the Catholic community decided not to pay their, their rent or their, or their government rates. And it appears from the documentation that I found out that, that Boyle was a central architect of this. Again, this is not something I was aware of. But by the end of 1971, despite all the protests, the, 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 there was no sign of internment going away. And so the Civil Rights Association which was you know, worried about being outflanked by more radical groups and uh, worried that the provisional IRA was broadening its appeal, felt they had to kind of get back in the act. And so they decided to hold a series of demonstrations. And in, in late December of that year, they, they, they met and they agreed they would have the first demonstration in Belfast on January 1st. And it, it turns out that it was Boyle who proposed that the second demonstration be held in Derry, not because he wanted or thought or expected 
confrontation. Indeed, Derry was considered safer than Belfast because there wasn't the same kind of volatile sectarian interface. Uh, but it was just felt important to have a rally there and the third march was gonna be in Newry. And the extent to which Boyle did not anticipate what was going to happen is indicated by the fact that he didn't even bother to go. He spent that afternoon catching up on his academic work in his flat in Belfast only to turn the radio on at six o'clock and be utterly shocked and appalled to discover that the British army had opened fire and 13 people had died. Eventually 14 people would die. Um, so, so he, you know, it was his idea. And then the following weekend, there was this march in Newry, which people at the time, if you read the press, people thought this was kind of a looming Armageddon, that this was gonna set things off. And Boyle came from Newry and he was the central figure in that march, and I reconstructed his movements that week. He, he went to the British Army, he went to the Provisionals, and he managed to orchestrate things so that this huge march went off peacefully. But what Boyle took away from the Bloody Sunday episode was that the space for street politics, which is what he'd been centrally involved in since uh, 1968, had disappeared. Uh, as Bernadette Deblin Michaliski said to me when we were talking about it, when I interviewed her, she said, those kind of peaceful politics died in Derry on Bloody Sunday and the march in Newry was the funeral. And it was after that that Boyle made a conscious decision to pull back and to switch gears and to focus other his energies on using the law and on academics uh, as, as a way forward because he didn't see street politics as having any viable path. Yeah, that's very interesting, that point. And, you know, unfortunately, other people took the lesson that street politics were dead, but the politics of the, the gun were, were the way forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And Boyle was very upset by that. And, and one thing that comes out very clearly in a great deal of what he did going forward was trying to find ways in which the injustices that existed in Northern Ireland and the mistreatment of people by the security forces and internment and, and all the other things that fueled outrage and fueled support for the gunmen. He tried to find practical ways to, to mitigate that behavior, to find ways out of those situations, both because he felt they were wrong in and of themselves, and also because he was concerned that if they weren't addressed, it would simply fuel support for the IRA. And he was always consistently against the use of violence. Uh, and, and he was very, very harshly critical of the IRA um, throughout his life. I mean, it strikes me a little bit that there's a parallel between Kevin Boyle's trajectory and the trajectory in America, in the United States, and this idea of using the law to, to remedy grievances. And I'm thinking, of course, of the Civil Rights Act in America and Roe versus Wade and, and the use of the Supreme Court. Do you think he had that in mind? Uh, I, th I think he very much had that in mind. And, and he himself has noted that one of the reasons why people took to the streets in Northern Ireland at the very beginning of the civil rights movement was that there wasn't a way to use the law to get the kind of changes that, that were needed to address the grievances that, that underpinned the civil rights movement. The legal systems are different and the, the ways of maneuvering through them to achieve a result are different. And so one of the things that Boyle did, and, and in this he was really a pioneer, was that he saw the possibilities of trying to use international law and to broaden the playing field in a sense by making use of the European Commission on Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights and the European Convention on Human Rights. These in more recent years, uh, going to Strasbourg, bringing cases to the European Court has become a relatively routine thing. In the early 1970s, it was almost unheard of to bring a case, there were really very, very few cases and, and even fewer actually got anywhere. Uh, and yet Boyle working at the time with an American colleague, Hurst Hannum, brought the first individual, sort of private individual cases of people who had been mistreated uh, at the hands of the security forces. This was the famous Donnelly case uh, that they brought in 1972. And even though they ultimately lost it in the sense that it wasn't at the time the system was you bring a case to the European Commission 
they admit it, they examine it, and they decide whether it should go to the European court for a final adjudication. And getting it admitted was already a big achievement, but getting it to the court was even harder and rarely happened. So in this case, the seven men they were representing, it was admitted, which led to the first time that the European Commission had actually sent people out to another country to examine in detail. They sent a delegation to uh, Belfast, they listened to the complaints of the prisoners, they talked to the British Army, and while there were, were a variety of procedural reasons why the case didn't ultimately make it to the court, it had an impact, and, and, and there is some evidence that it did have some impact in terms of the way security forces treated people on the streets. And more broadly, it set a precedent that this was a tool because the UK uh, was jurisdiction of this European court that could be used, and Boyle used it again, on multiple different cases, some involving Ireland, North and South, including being the lead lawyer in the Dudgeon case, which decriminalized homosexuality in Northern Ireland, which led then to Mary Robinson representing David Norris uh, in the Republic, making almost exactly the same arguments which led to the European Court of Human Rights decriminalizing homosexuality uh, in the Republic as well. And then in multiple other cases. So he was really a pioneer uh, in doing this. Obviously, not as satisfying as putting a bomb somewhere and blowing somebody up. But Boyle felt it was both immoral to do that. And also in the long run, you needed structural reforms that would lead to improvements. Uh, you couldn't shoot your way to a solution. Well, Mike, another big turning point in the troubles was the hunger strikes. And Kevin also had a role with the prisoners in the H-blocks or, or Lankesh. That is a, another sort of very interesting episode about which I knew nothing until I began work on this book. Uh, there was almost nothing in the, in the Boyle archive about it, but in the course of the research, Boyle's wife, Joan, told me that uh, when Boyle had left the Queen's University and gone to teach at NUI Galway in 1978, and they had a little cottage in Connemara. And the summer of 1981, they were out there. And Joan Boyle recalls very late at night, Kevin and his colleague Francis Keenan were, were off somewhere. And the phone rang, and it was the wife of Garrett Fitzgerald, the Taoiseach, saying that, uh, please tell Kevin they're not going to be flying to uh, Strasbourg tomorrow. And Joan didn't know much more about it. So I started digging. And it turns out that what had happened was there were two IRA hunger strikes. There was one in the fall of 1980, which ended. And then there was the big one in the spring of 81, which led to 10 people dying, including Bobby Sands and all the upheaval. In the first hunger strike, Boyle's colleague, Francis Keenan, and Boyle worked together. They represented some of the people there and they brought a case to Strasbourg, which was basically thrown out. But the way the European Commission's court system worked at the time, two of the points in their case were essentially put aside, they were deferred, a judgment wasn't made. And after the situation really began to heat up in the, in the spring of 81, the court decided to re-examine these cases and Boyle saw an opening here because one of the things that the European Commission and court did was it, it offered its auspices for what was called a friendly settlement. In other words, before it actually came to a legal case, the institutions in Strasbourg could be a kind of neutral site for the combatants in this legal case to try and hammer out a settlement. And so Boyle and Francis Keenan, with the strong encouragement of Garrett Fitzgerald, the Taoiseach, who was very alarmed at the way the uh, hunger strikes was leading to a surge in support for both the IRA and provisional Sinn Féin, tried to use the Strasbourg machinery in which Boyle and Keenan would represent the hunger strikers try and find a way to negotiate some middle ground uh, compromise that would give the hunger strikers an excuse to call off the hunger strike. And it turned out in the end, I learned that there were sort of proximity talks that Boyle and Keenan would be in one room, British would be in another room, European Commission officials would go back and forth because the British didn't want to be seen as negotiating. But in the end, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher torpedoed the whole project and it didn't work. But it was interesting, both because it was fascinating to discover that Boyle had been in the middle of this, and of course, he never 
talked about it with anybody. And secondly, it was an example of the kind of creative way that he tried to use these existing mechanisms for very practical results. And even though in this case it didn't work, it's an example of, of his kind of creative thinking to try and find ways out of very difficult crises. Well, Mike, you mentioned there the concern that the Irish government had about the rise in support for Sinn Féin and the Republican movement after the hunger strikes. One of the other things that you cover in your book is the New Ireland Forum and the Irish government and constitutional nationalism throughout Ireland, North and South, trying to come up with solutions, nonviolent solutions. Can you talk about Kevin's role in the New Ireland Forum? Uh, he, he played an interesting role uh, in the New Ireland Forum, which incidentally was chaired uh, by the uh, president of uh, NUI Galway, the guy who had hired Boyle initially. And, and Boyle, Boyle's great intellectual collaborator for most of his life was a guy named Tom Haddon, who was a Protestant from Portadown who taught law at Queen's University. And the two of them had worked together on a couple of books about justice and the administration of justice and security issues in Northern Ireland. They made a submission to the forum. And then after the forum produced its report, and the report had the three options, United Ireland, a joint authority between the Republic and the UK, confederation of some sort, but all of them essentially uh, involving a change in the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. And Boyle and Haddon wrote a critique that basically said, however well-intentioned, there's no way that you can you know, compel a change in the constitutional position of Northern Ireland without the Protestants fighting back, and that a much better approach would be for the UK and the Irish governments to forge some kind of agreement which reassured the Protestants that they would not be forced into United Ireland against their will, but would legitimize the aspiration to want a united Ireland as long as that aspiration was expressed peacefully uh, by the nationalist population and would, and would legitimize the Irish identity that many uh, Catholics felt in the North. And so they wrote this long paper and it even included ideas for a language that could be used in a, in a joint sort of declaration. And then what I discovered was Gareth Fitzgerald went to London in November of 1984, and he had a summit with Margaret Thatcher. And at the end of that summit, she gave her famous out, out, out press conference. And for history aficionados, this is a famous moment where the Iron Lady comes out and she says, United Ireland is out, joint authority is out, 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 out. And the, it was portrayed in the press as Thatcher rejects everything and is a massive blow for Fitzgerald. But what I learned, interestingly, was that at some point during those meetings, Thatcher had pulled out a copy of this report that Boyle and Haddon had written and plopped it on the table and, and said to Fitzgerald, have you seen this? On this, I can do business. As a result, it may have helped Fitzgerald sort of weather in his own personal calculations, the immediate negative fallout from the out, out, out declaration. And then within a year, the two governments had signed the Anglo-Irish agreement and a great many of its ideas and principles were those that Boyle and Haddon put forward. And indeed, a lot of those principles can be found in the Good Friday Agreement. But an interesting example of sort of how I had to do the research for this book, the story about Thatcher saying to Fitzgerald, I can do business with this. I heard from Tom Haddon and I heard from Boyle's wife. I could not find any documentation. Thatcher never wrote about it or spoke about it. Fitzgerald never wrote about it uh, or spoke about it. But in the course of digging, I came up with a memo that the British Northern Ireland secretary at the time had written to Thatcher's private secretary enclosing a copy of the Boyle Haddon report and saying, bring this to the attention of the prime minister. It has some very useful ideas and he'd underlined a lot of the, the key points. Uh, and so there was your proof that Thatcher had seen it. And then I found a note that Boyle had written to somebody nine months later when their report was gonna be published as a book. Uh, he wrote to his publisher and he said, I can't tell you how, but I know for a fact that Margaret Thatcher essentially bought into our analysis about nine months ago. So the timing fits and neither Boyle nor Haddon were the kind of people who like to boast about themselves. In fact, one of the qualities that Boyle had, which made him both a very attractive 
figure, but made my job as a historian much harder, was that he wasn't somebody who liked to talk a lot about what he did. He liked to talk about the issues and so forth. But his personal, I did this, I met this person, I, he wasn't interested in doing that. And indeed, uh, members of his family said that they only learned some things about him from the research I did on my book. He just didn't like to talk about it, but he liked to do it. But this was, I think, important and it shows. And, and then as I asked other people, more and more people would say, yes, the, they really were crucial in helping provide the intellectual foundation for the Anglo-Irish Agreement and the intellectual foundation for the Good Friday Agreement. One of the interesting lines I found from Kevin Boyle was that he said he wanted to use the law not to stifle people, but to empower them. And can you explain what he would have meant by, by both parts of that sentence? Well, law can be used to, you have passed law, you can't do this, you can't go there, you can't say that. And often that's what it's used for. But I think Boyle saw the law from quite early on as a tool which people could use to effect change. And so his approach to law is, yes, you have to learn all this complicated, dry, boring, turgid stuff, because that's that those are the kind of the, you know, the internal machinery of law. But the idea would be to find ways to use that to address injustice, to expand rights protections for people. So that was a kind of guiding philosophy. And, and one of the things that is striking about Boyle while he was doing all the stuff we've been talking about, and he did an awful lot more with the rest of his life beyond Ireland, he was most of the time working full-time as a professor at Queen's in Belfast, at NUI Galway, and then from 1989 until his death uh, at the University of Essex uh, in England. In Galway, he, he essentially built the law faculty and he created the Irish Center for Human Rights, the first such center anywhere in, in Ireland. And at Essex, he did a full teaching load and he was one of the people that helped devise the Center for Human Rights there. And he headed it for many, many years and turned it into what it still remains today, which is one of the world's leading centers for training people in human rights. And, and his great kind of intellectual contribution was the notion that human rights should be incorporated into the teaching of law and should be central to the teaching of law. That's pretty widely acknowledged today. But Boyle was really one of the earliest pioneers in doing that, first in Galway and then in Essex. So sort of how he managed to do that and do all this other stuff, the guy just had prodigious energy. It's quite astonishing. And the academic part for him, I think, was, I think he saw this as training future generations of people to take the same kind of approach, which is I'm equipping you with the tools in law to go out and change things for the better. And that was the way he saw it. And can we talk a bit about his international work? Like I'm fascinated to see he intervened in places as diverse as South Africa and the Kurdish regions of Turkey. It, it is fascinating. And, 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 you know, it started quite early. He did a mission in 1980-81 for Amnesty International to the Gambia in Africa, observing political trials. And then uh, in, in 1984 and 85, Amnesty asked him to go to South Africa, and this is the darkest days of apartheid, and compile a report on the past system. This was the system where the white South African government used to control the movement of blacks and to sort of force them out of the main cities and deny them rights to free movement. And Boyle made two very long trips there. And, and I was able through tracking down people that he encountered at the time and finding documents and correspondence and so on to I was able to have a whole chapter. Uh, he was appalled by what he found in South Africa, uh, but inspired by the kind of resistance movement that he also so, and he did this report, which Amnesty International then used as the basis for a big campaign against the past laws, which were fairly soon thereafter abandoned by the South African government, partly because of international pressure. He also did a mission in 1989 to Somalia, where he came face to face with General Mohamed Siad Barre, the Somali dictator who was one of the great thugs of modern African history, really a, a nasty, brutish guy. And Boyle went in and challenged him directly about political imprisonment and others. 
And then in the 90s, he and working uh, primarily with his University of Essex colleague, Francoise Hampson, who's really the world's leading expert on the law of war, they brought dozens of cases on behalf of the beleaguered Kurds of southeastern Turkey. The Kurds are a big minority who have faced oppression from the Turkish government for decades and decades. And they were targets of, uh, you know, villages were raised, people were killed, people were imprisoned, people were tortured. And when Turkey was joining the EU, it suddenly found itself subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights. And so they brought a series of cases, almost all of which they won. Uh, in the course of bringing them, Boyle had to make these frequent and often very dangerous trips to Turkey with Turkish government goons following them and threatening them and so on. But it led to important rulings by the European court about detention without trial, about torture, about defining rape as a war crime. So they were very important in establishing benchmarks for international law. And he also did a number of other important cases at Strasbourg on freedom of the press, which was an issue that he cared very, very deeply about. Well, that's one of the things that runs through the book as well, his commitment to freedom of the press and freedom of expression, and also defending writers like Salman Rusty, for example. Can you right. talk about that case, please? The Salman Rusty case and Boyle's role in it is very interesting. And it's, again, it's not something that I was sort of readily aware of, and most people weren't, because Boyle just didn't go around advertising it. That just wasn't the kind of guy he was. But in the 1986, Boyle became the founding director of a, of a new NGO in London called Article 19, which was set up with the idea of being uh, an organization to do for freedom of expression what Amnesty International did for political prisoners, which was to raise the issue to lobby on behalf of freedom of expression to defend people whose rights of free expression were under threat. Uh, and he did all sorts of things, and he put this organization on the map, and today it remains an important NGO doing that kind of work. But in 1989, Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran issued a fatwa, a religious ruling, condemning the British Indian writer Salman Rushdie to death because this book, Satanic Verses, Rushdie's book, uh, was considered blasphemous, even though Khomeini himself had never read it. It was just relying on on hearsay. But it created a huge stir, and it was really one of the first kind of global confrontations between radical Islam and sort of liberal Western values. And copies of Rushdie's book were burned in Muslim communities in England. And Rushdie's Japanese translator was murdered. And his, his editor, his publisher in a couple of different European countries were attacked. The bombs in bookstores in London, the liberal imams in Brussels were killed. It was a very volatile time. But literally within days of this fatwa, ordering Rushdie's execution being issued, Boyle convened a meeting of people from Article 19 and other sort of freedom of expression NGOs and announced the creation of a campaign to defend Salman Rushdie. And one of the most well-known moments in this campaign was there was a letter that was signed by a number of winners of the Nobel Prize for Literature, and in the end, thousands of other writers from dozens of countries around the world, including the, uh, the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, uh, the Islamic world, and West, defending Salman Rushdie. And I discovered that largely Boyle's idea to do the letter, that he wrote the draft, that he was centrally involved in getting all these signatures. And he became, in these very scary early days, when people associated Rushdie were literally uh, had their lives were in danger, he became the public face of the campaign to defend Salman Rushdie. And it was another example of something that, that I was struck by and that a number of the people I interviewed for when I was researching Are You With Me said, in his very quiet, modest, unassuming way, Boyle was an exceptionally brave man, physically brave man, that he was not afraid to say things and do things or go to places that would put him in danger. And he is absolutely true in the case of Rushdie. It was certainly true in Northern Ireland in the early days. Uh, it was true in South Africa. It was true with the Kurds. Uh, he never boasted about it. He wasn't sort of a macho guy. He just quietly went around and did it, but it took a lot of courage. Um, Mike, I can't resist asking, you know, the parallel with today and, and, you know, the parallels with, for example, the Salman Rushdie affair and the Charlie Hebdo affair today. And 
whereas in the 80s, you know, the people who, who liberal activists were opposing, like the South African regime, were all for censorship and so on like that. Today, the debate seems to be more like, how can I put this, the right not to be offended. And what do you think Kevin Boyle and activists of his generation would have said about that? Well, I, th I think Boyle would say that people have a right to speak. He once said freedom of expression is like breathing. It's, you know, it's the central thing on which all our other freedoms depend. But he also would have been very much in favor of trying to reach out and understand what the other side you know, of, of, of this, uh, these disputes were, and, and, and he would have been very much in favor of dialogue. In fact, even in the, the Salman Rushdie letter, for example, you know, he talked about, I'm quoting from the letter, uh, support the right of all people to express their ideas and to discuss them with their critics on the basis of mutual tolerance free from censorship, intimidation, and violence. And I think that's what he would be advocating today. Not that you should censor things because somebody's offended, but that people had the right to express themselves, but also needed to respect and have engage in dialogue. And it's gotten harder and harder to do. And the internet and social media has made it more complicated. But I think that was kind of the way in which he approached it and would probably approach it today. Well, I think we might finish up, Mike, talking about Kevin's role in the United Nations and working for Mary Robinson. It seemed to have been a very controversial time to be involved in human rights within the UN. Mary Robinson was an old friend and colleague of Boyle's. They'd been friends for many years. They'd worked together on legal cases. And she had been the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights for a number of years and had just agreed to extend her term. And she asked if Boyle would join her as the chief advisor and speechwriter. And Boyle agreed. And his first day on the job was September 11, 2001. And Mary Robinson was actually on holiday in Ireland and was on a boat when the Al-Qaeda terrorists crashed their planes uh, in New York. And so it fell to Boyle on his first day on the job to work with colleagues and try to craft a kind of human rights response to 9-11. I would say, apart from Secretary General Kofi Annan, Mary Robinson was the most visible, famous figure at the UN at that time. She's a hugely important figure. And Boyle worked extremely closely with her. And the approach that they came up with was to cast the September 11th attacks as and to frame them as crimes against humanity and as crimes to advocate for the use of the law, both national and international law, to bring the perpetrators to justice and to do so in a way that would not jeopardize human rights and would not provide a pretext for depriving people of their human rights. And this brought them into very sharp conflict with the Bush administration because President Bush his notion was the war on terror, sort of, which, which uh, when I interviewed Mary Robinson, she described it and then Boyle agreed with this uh, characterization. It's a war on an abstraction. And Boyle was concerned, as was Mary Robinson at the time, that it opened up the doors to uh, human rights abuses that it risked eroding the broad international coalition that rallied to the United States side after the attacks. And, and in the end would be counterproductive. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. Uh, under the unending war on terror, the U international coalition fractured. You had the abuses that the American military committed at the infamous Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq and the prisoners' extraordinary rendition and torture and people taken to be held without trial at the American base in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. And so Boyle suddenly found himself in the middle of this very intense debate, which is a live issue today. How do you confront terror without losing the rights that the terrorists themselves want to get rid of by attacking your system? It's interesting. I think it's one of the many ways in which Boyle's work, even though he's been gone for a decade and a lot of what he did goes back decades before that, remains highly relevant because all the central issues that he dealt with, tension without trial, government repression, the rights of, of, of women, of minorities, of gay people, the right to freedom of expression, the importance of maintaining human rights 
even while you fight terror. And at the very end of his life, Boyle talked about, and, I, and this is very interesting, he identified earlier than a lot of others, the dangers of private corporations accumulating vast troves of information and new technology threatening the right to privacy. And this was long before the use and abuse of Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, social media, and so on became a burning issue. So he was really in many ways a kind of visionary in identifying issues which were relevant at the time and which he tried at the time to do something about which remain relevant today. And that's why I think this book, Are You With Me, Kevin Boyle and the Rise of the Human Rights Movement, even though it's about somebody who's no longer alive, contains important lessons that people can look at now as well to help them think through these issues, as well as being, I think, a, a, an inspiring story of a guy who fought the good fight his whole life. And today, at a time when human rights protections are being undermined in many parts of the world, including places that we always kind of thought they were relatively safe, like the UK and Brexit, the US under Donald Trump, and so on, uh, seeing how somebody fought through all the ups and downs, never got discouraged, recognized that human rights can't ever be taken for granted and you just have to fight for them over and over and over using the law and political engagement and inspiring the next generation is something that can help lift spirits at a kind of dark and gloomy time around the world. Yeah, I mean, I'd say if we were doing this 10 years ago, we, we would be talking about the vindication of the idea of the liberal world order and the you know, the rule of law and so on. And perhaps today we're a little more pessimistic about those things. Yeah, it's a dark time. There's no, I live in Hong Kong where China has imposed a national security law that essentially has swept out all of the civil liberties and political freedoms that Hong Kong has had for many, many years. So I'm living through it myself. Yeah, it is a dark time. And a lot of people are very pessimistic and uh, discouraged. And I think Boyle would also be very alarmed at a lot of what he would see out there. But I think he would be inspired by the Me Too movement, by the Black Lives Matter movement, by the people who have been willing to speak up against injustice, often under very dangerous circumstances around the world. And the fight for human rights, I think he felt, is one that it never ends. And you win some and you lose some, but as long as you're still on the battlefield, you haven't lost. And my guess is if he were still around, he'd still be on the battlefield. Well, Mike, thank you very much. So that's Mike Shinoy and his new book, Are You With Me? Kevin Boyle and the Rise of the Human Rights Movement is now available from Lilliput Press. So you can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify or whichever platform you get your podcasts on as it really helps us. So if you'd like to listen back to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. So on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.